0: There's an important aspect of understanding what the implications of clinical data are that you might not understand if you haven't been a clinician, if you haven't kind of been in the room or tried to take assessment data and translate that into some kind of treatment plan. On the other side, if you've never really dealt with data or, you know, statistical analyses or research, you may be measuring things in ways that don't actually answer the questions that you want to answer.
1: Welcome to Meeting of the Minds. I'm Chris Hempill from uh, Wobot Health. And uh, for the the folks that are new here, uh, first Meeting of the Minds session, uh, we focus on issues like health equity, AI in healthcare and many many other topics. Ultimately, we're just glad to, to have you in another conversation. Something that we, we, we've actually seen a lot of attention around this subject. Uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, breaking past the hype that we see in digital health. So I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Quinn No, who is uh, from from Hazelton Betty Ford, and what we're going to be discussing how to break past the hype with digital health and just a little frame up in uh, just a little background there, is that there are over 55,000 digital health applications. You can look it up on Statista, 55,000, that's a real number. And they all purport to be the solution for things like remote monitoring, mental health, consumer experience, and and a myriad of other subjects. So there's a great deal of hype out there, but there's also a great deal of solutions that can help uh, with improving experience and outcomes. So the, the big question is how do we know what's going to work and how do we know what, uh, what's going to be leading into the next Watson or, or Theranos? I know you're all thinking, Chris, you, you, you work for Wobot, you work for a digital health company, so why should we even be here listening to you? Well, you don't have to take my word for it. Allow me to introduce Dr. Quinn No, Dr. Quinn leads digital health research initiatives that suss out which applications are a good fit for the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. Hazelden Betty Ford focuses on treatment and research for substance use and mental health so that this is a perfect walking of the line between mental health and digital health, if if that's what we're here for. She's the executive director for their Butler Center of Research, and she has a deep research background in clinical psychology, substance use disorder, intimate partner violence, and digital health interventions. So straddling that line, digital health and mental health, we're delving in to know how to know which solutions are effective, equitable and ethical. So kicking us off, Dr. Quinn, what are you excited for our viewers to learn or change?
0: Um, Well, I'm, first of all, really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for having me on, Chris. Um, And I think that, you know, the conversation today will really be about, you know, how do we do the best? For our patients and for the people we serve, um, right? So I, I think it's it'll be important to walk away with this sense of one that you know research doesn't mean that you know everything's going to move so slowly that you can't be competitive or you can't get things done, um, but you can do things in a responsible way, in a scientifically sound way um, that both helps business and healthcare move forward, uh, and I think that also conversation. Our conversation um, around just you know how do you choose? There's so many things out there, like you said, you know, so many things to choose from. And people come in with their slides, and it looks fancy and it looks great. How do you know it's the right thing for your organization and for your customers or your patients?
1: So that that's a fantastic framework, Quinn, uh, about research not being the blocker there. Uh, that it doesn't have to slow everything down to where business can't be done. Um, there, there was actually uh, a previous guest, and you probably, if you saw the trailer to this event, then you, you, you saw this term pracademic, mm-hmm. yep. Which, yeah. T- so take, taking, taking the, the, the concepts like the, the important research founding of academia, but also uh, the, the practical nature and the, the need to execute in the business world and finding that, that line and marrying between those two. So excited for the way that you frame that up. Thank you, um, uh, Quinn, for, for just framing up what you're excited for people to learn learn about today. And when we're going over your background, going over like where you are with leading research at uh, Hazel and Betty Ford, I, I'm, I'm just curious about like, like what's your day-to-day? Like, like, what are you doing today in digital health? And what's, just taking a step back, what's motivated you down the path that you've taken?
0: Sure. So um, today, uh, I I lead a team, uh, as you said, at the Butler Center for Research, and so we are the research arm of the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, um, which is an addiction treatment health system. And um, so, as part of what we do, we run clinical trials. So we have clinical trials that happen within um, our health system. Um, We also, uh, so that and that can include, you know, everything from kind of bench sciencey, like how how do, how are our cells working um, in response to certain things, um, as well as behavioral. Um, so we have clinical trials that happen. We also do outcomes data collection for um, our organization. We look at the data that we collect. I work closely with the clinical team in terms of, you know, how do we collect good clinical data, um, and and how do we use that so that we can continue to refine what we do so that we're doing the best for our patients. Um, and and I I really love what I do. I, I came from academia, um, so I. Like to say that I'm a recovering academic. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I've spent most of my life in academia, but I, I came to the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation and I've just really loved the practical side of this and also being able to engage in lots of different kinds of research. Um, so, you know, part of what brought me um, to, to Hazelden Betty Ford is really uh, the fact that, you know, I'm a clinician by training. And, um, and as much as I, I loved academia and, and there's an incredibly important role for academia, I really wanted to have a more direct impact on patient care. I wanted to see um, more of that translational uh, Aspect of you know research to practice, um, and so this position has really allowed me to do that to really engage um, and, and build a team that is taking those principles of research and and science into um, into patient care.
1: So th- that that's an exciting way to frame it up too. Um, just the the idea that there's this heavy uh, he- uh, heavy background research. And you were looking at uh, like somehow that this opportunity to uh, have an, to, to take that research and, and have an impact uh, is, is what you got. You started down this path.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think that um, so often we think, you know, research is often this ivory tower and a lot of research isn't seen by, you know, people outside of academia. And so I really wanted my career um, to have an impact in, you know, taking that science, taking that research, um, and, uh, and applying it in real world settings, you know, companies and treatment centers. They don't have the luxury of, you know, getting a grant and running a randomized controlled trial in a very controlled way, right? Like companies and, and healthcare settings, we have to think about keeping the doors open. We have to think about, you know, all of the, um, you know, regulations that come along, um, especially in addiction treatment, um, with, you know, caring for our patients. And that's a really different setting. Um, and not that there aren't regulations in academia. I just want to be clear that human subjects research has a lot of of regulations, but you know, in in here, you know, where I am now, it's really an intersection of that research and and also patient care, um, and and uh, I think that my team and I have really filled this this niche that that's been missing, um, which is that, you know, we are clinician researchers. So having someone who has that sort of cl- clinical hat, but also the research hat um, is something that, you know, my team has done really well. And I, I love my team and, and I'm really proud of them. So um, so that has been a really nice intersection that I've been able to bring um, to, to our center and, and to Hazelden Betty Ford.
1: Well, I, I like that perspective. And I, I like the fact that you talk about that intersection between clinician researcher and now in the in the more practical setting because i think that the folks in in our in our audience like they they like i'm personally not a uh, not a clinician uh, with not not a research background and things like that but there are decisions that uh every one of us are in charge of and every one of us has to uh permeate through our digital health companies or 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 our health tech companies so I think what's exciting about this conversation is is being able to extract some of that knowledge, extract some of those principles that we can start um, applying out in the field. What are some of the, some key principles that they should be looking for and thinking about before engaging these uh, digital health ven- vendors?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one thing to know or note is as you're evaluating, um, you know, these different vendors, you want to, uh, you know, the the research, this is my research hat on, right? You wanna know that whatever you're getting is working and doing what it says it's going to do, right? And to have, to to be able to determine that there needs to be some good studies or at least some piloting that's happened um, to give you that data. Now, what I've seen happen is, you know, some vendors will come in um, and they'll have this slick slide deck and then they might hand you, you know, a hundred page PDF or Word document that's filled with research. The difference is that it's not research necessarily on their platform or their intervention or what they're doing, right? It's kind of a summary of the research literature, right? And so you look at it and you're like, I'm, I'm not reading this hundred page, you know, summary of, of a research field. Um, But it looks good, right? There's the research there. And so it must work. Right, and so that's one that's one strategy that I've seen people use. And so, what's important then is to look specifically and see, you know, have there been actual studies done, you know? And it doesn't have to be a randomized controlled trial, right? You just need something there to show that, like, they've tried, they've been thinking about this, they've really been thinking about how, how do you gather this data, um, to show that what I'm doing works. Um, and so that I think that is one of the most critical pieces is, you know, have they been thinking about how you measure this, right? And you know, if someone has a good sense of research, if they have collected the correct data to answer the question they have, right? So the the question is, does my platform work, right? A lot of times people come with, people really like my platform, right? Which is a different different answer than does your platform work, um, and so uh, you know we it, it needs to be more than just kind of someone's happy with it. Someone would recommend it, right? That's great, right? And and that does give you information in terms of will people use the platform, right? And you do want to know that but you need to you know take a step beyond that and say okay well they'll use it but is it going to help them is it going to make things worse some things have made things worse right so so it's it's really asking some of those questions and knowing behind that you know what what is there really behind to show that this platform is actually going to work
1: that's a really good uh, 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 the way that you frame that up is uh like, let me make sure i understand it right but Imagine you've seen the slick PowerPoint. Now you're uh, you're, you're asking for the uh, for for the research, and you get a tome of uh, of information and studies and things like that. But uh, there's no guarantee, necessarily. Like like it's it's taking a step beyond just the fact that the studies are there and the abstracts are there, and looking for uh, details that that suss out whether or not this was actually tested on a population um, and what some of those results were not requiring them to go through a full like multi-arm trials and things like that but at the very least was this tested
0: yeah yeah that, that that's exactly right and and it's and you know it, it's really not enough for a platform to be based on good research right so you can have a platform that uses i don't know Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, contingency management, because those are well researched in the literature. There's good evidence that they're effective, but that doesn't mean that the way you're doing contingency management or CBT is effective, right? So you actually have to have the data on what you are doing in order to show that efficacy, because it doesn't matter if, you know, like, you know, Susie Q out there at university, you know, of whatever showed that her contingency management and CBT program worked. You're not, you're not necessarily doing what, what, what she did, right? You have to show that what you that what you have based on her work also works. And so that's that's also um, you know something that happens that I've seen happen is you know, vendors will come in and say, you know, this is evidence-based. Um, you know, this approach is evidence-based. Well, that implies that they did the work there that, you know, that, that implies that they did the research and and they have the data to back that up. But a lot of times what I've seen is, no, they don't actually have the data on their intervention, but they can tell you about studies on someone else's intervention that uses the same principles, right? It's, It's different and it matters because you don't know if they're doing the same things the same way as this other intervention that was shown to be effective. So there could be things that are different about what they're doing that could make their platform or their tool ineffective. You don't know that.
1: So the, that's a the, yeah, great way to look at it is that there's lots of great research out there. There's lots of great uh, uh, studies that have been conducted on these populations, but if the application, if the, uh, if the applied manner, if you're taking that research and applying it in a way that doesn't work, it doesn't matter that they were able to rattle off those acronyms that are associated with those 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 great things that have happened. It has to be based on do they have the data to back it up and uh, and uh, like have they run uh, run their own trials or put it put it on their own scenarios?
0: That's exactly right, and it also matters, you know, who was included in the research to begin with, right? So if if uh, if an approach has only been researched in one population. And then someone takes it, picks it up and puts it in for another population. And this happens a lot with marginalized communities, right? Like they'll take one intervention and they'll just kind of apply it to another community and the work hasn't been done to adapt that um, or to show that it's effective in that community. So, you know, you have no idea whether or not it's going to work, you know, from adults to adolescents or from, you know, this community to that community. It, it, you, you really need to understand within your patient population or within your customers, does it work for them?
1: More great principles to, to hold a vendor accountable or hold, a, uh, hold a, an, another body accountable if they're saying that I'm just gonna throw out a number. If they're saying that this was 99% effective, like I like throwing out 99%, because uh, it, it's like whenever like we're nothing doing is ever
0: own... 99% effective. Just
1: <laughs> yeah, starting out there. Yeah. So so starting there, and then uh, if if they if they can't even answer the the basic question on well on which audience on which population if the, then there there's a whole lot of people that are aggregated up to that layer that uh, you're you're missing out if. if I'm always thinking about it in terms of data science models. So I'm, yep, that's why, yep. yeah. So, but, but either way, uh, those those really pretty high-end numbers uh, sometimes fail when you ask, when we go deeper on, well, how did it do on this segment of the population? How did it perform on women versus men or, right. uh, yeah.
0: Yep, That that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, those are great opportunities to partner with vendors, right? And say, hey, you know, I don't know that it's effective with, with my people, but you know, maybe we can collect some data and see, you know, one, do people like it? And then two, is it working for them? Is it helping them?
1: So uh, digging, digging deeper in that, and that like, um, I've realized that we're going back and forth on uh, like, like these general principles. And I think there's a, I hope people have been taking notes. There's some really good stuff, uh, uh, stuff, stuff to go off of here. But I, I was thinking about what if we, delve into some examples where we're thinking through these principles and uh you you've been evaluating the uh uh, like various projects for uh and betty ford and you found something that worked you found something that was successful could you talk about what that intervention was and and what the vetting process was
0: yeah absolutely so um, I can share uh, one of the clinical trials that we have going on right now at and Betty Ford in partnership with Spark Biomedical. So hey, Spark people. Um, but this is um, a, a device that um, is kind of like a, a TENS machine. You know, those muscle stimulation kind of buzzes um, when, you, when you put on, you know, little patches. Um, but it's it's um, called a transauricular neurostimulation device. Um, system or device, Um, and it's basically kind of like a sticker or something that sits behind your ear and has a piece that kind of comes right on the outside of your ear here, Um, and it stimulates specific nerves. Um, This device is FDA approved, so one, it's already been through that evaluation, right, and then two, it has some preliminary Um, evidence already showing that it's effective in reducing withdrawal symptoms for opioid use disorders, right? So it's got some pilot data there. In addition to that, um, you know, when we met with Spark Biomedical, they also provided sort of the, the theory behind why they, they had this device, right? So the theory is important. Is it theory-driven, you know, for me as a researcher? As a clinician, you may not care. Well, you might care. But, um, you know, as a researcher, you know, is, is it theoretically and scientifically sound? So the principles you built that device off of, does it make sense? I read through the research, made sense to me looked at the preliminary data, there was support for that. It was FDA approved. You know, we we talked through a lot of that. And then the second part of that, after all of that evaluation, is it something that our patients need, right? So we have patients that when they go through withdrawal or when they're detoxing, they don't necessarily want to be on medication For addiction treatment. But that's currently, you know, the the best practice that we have for our patients. It's it's effective. Um, There's a lot of good research behind it, but not all patients want it. And so if we can offer someone a a non-medication alternative, will it help them in their recovery? Will it help them, um, you know, in, 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 in their addiction treatment? And so did our patient, is it, you know, something that could potentially benefit our our patients? Absolutely, right? And it's a need and it's something that our patients have communicated to us. So, you know, there's there's a desire there. Um, And then, you know, are are our staff on board, do our staff also feel like this is an important product? that could help within our system. And our staff were on board as well. So it's sort of the the scientific vetting, um, the efficacy or preliminary efficacy vetting, the safety vetting of that, um, and then also confirming with our patients and with our staff that it's something that's, that's needed and wanted, right? The third piece of this is safety. Around the device and the study. So when we do human subjects research, which is any research that includes people, basically, um, I mean, there's some nuance into that, but you know, we don't need to dive into that here. But I want to make sure that what we're doing is safe for our patients. So we're not doing super experimental things on our patients, right? We're we're doing things that you know are, are grounded and have good evidence to them. And we need to make sure that our partners are following all of the rules, laws, and regulations, both for clinical research, as well as for patient care. So there are lots of regulations from um, the Department of Health and Human Services um, in the US when when you um, provide addiction treatment. And that's on the treatment side, that's the clinical side. So we wanna make sure that our partners respect that. But also when you're doing research, there are lots of regulations around human subjects and making sure that they're safe, that we are protecting privacy, that we have anonymity there. Um, And and so we wanna make sure our partners are following that as well. So when you're doing clinical research, you have to be on board with all of that, um, and so when we brought in this device, we had to go through all of those levels of evaluation and and vetting and 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 talking across our, our various departments too to make sure that this made sense for us as an organization.
1: So that that brings a, a lot of things to bear because um, what on on the one hand there is the uh, the the efficacy component the uh, the, the like. The, the question of does your product do what it claims to do but in your frame up of all the things you need to evaluate just because the product works doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be working for your organization so it sounded like you're you're bringing in not just the uh research on the on the product itself but also the understanding of how your culture might receive the intervention and and how uh, how teams might be impacted and work with it
0: yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of basic change management, right? You need buy-in from people. They need to believe in what you're doing and they need to want to do it as well. And if the organization is very much against it, um, you know, then then there's there's work to be done there and, and decisions to be made. Um but absolutely, it's it's working across teams. It's evaluating, you know, just because something is fancy doesn't mean that you should be bringing it in just to look fancy. If it's not actually going to be helpful or you can't actually implement it as an organization, then that's a waste of resources, right? And we need to be responsible stewards of the resources that we have. Everybody's talking about how there's not enough people, there's not enough time, there's not enough money, right? So if you're throwing... Resources into something that doesn't make sense for your organization. It doesn't matter how fancy it is, and it doesn't matter if it's effective.
1: We we're, you're, you've addressed the issue of people saying, "Hey, my product's effective. That, that like that this 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 is a it's ready to go." And also the issue of p- people saying, "Well, people like using this product and all that." But it's still that that's data that's coming from the uh fr- from the vendor. So we got a question from uh, Michelle Guerra in in the audience. Uh, To what level would you trust the digital company's own analysis that's speaking to their effectiveness and outcomes versus independent analysis of their digital tool?
0: So, I mean, independent analysis is always, you know, preferable, usually, I mean, you know, usually. Um, But I think if it's an internal analysis from the organization, I need to know what they did. So I want to see what kind of data they collected. I want to see when they collected it, who collected it, um, you know, with whom it was collected. So who who did you ask, right? Did you cherry pick the people that were like, I love this thing, right? And, And so you're like, great, can you answer this survey, right? That doesn't actually tell you, you know, whether or not it's effective. It tells you that the people who liked it Felt like it was effective, right? So I wanna know, I wanna look under the hood of that research and see what they did. Then I wanna know how much missing data there was. Because if there's data missing, I mean, you know, if there's data missing, there's all sorts of, you know, skewness and and bias that can be introduced into the analysis. So that's where it's really important to have a researcher, preferably who's also at least familiar with clinical work, who can look at the data and say, well, did they just filter out this program because it didn't have, you know, good results? did they just leave this variable out because it didn't say what they wanted it to say? You have to, you know, you have to really dig into that research a little and and see what exactly they did.
1: I think that anybody listening should should be able to like, Take, like, take note to the types of things that, that, that they should be focusing on. But also if we flip it, like f- we're talking about focusing on from like an evaluation or purchasing perspective, but flipping it to the product designers and uh, digital health uh, vendors out there, what are some of the things that they should be focusing on to make sure that Not just they're, they're positioning themselves well for whatever evaluation, but they're doing right for their audience because there's lots of scenarios where there might not be that expertise within the organization uh, right off the bat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So two pitfalls that I see vendors falling into one is they haven't spoken to enough providers. So, and it's it's not good enough to reach out to your friend who is in this industry and provide services, right? You need to talk to a lot of different providers and a lot of different types of organizations, different size organizations. You know, Hazel and Betty Ford is a multi-site, you know, large treatment system. There are some smaller treatment systems that function operationally really differently right? There are also different kinds of providers. You know, we have, you know, specific therapeutic approaches we have. Um, other organizations may use different kinds of therapeutic approaches. So you need to talk to a broad, you know, you need to have a pretty broad sample when you're talking about building a tool for someone. And, and a lot of times um, I see one of two things happen. One is, you know, someone who is, is really passionate and excited kind of builds what's in their mind. Right. And and they kind of think, you know, this is, this is the way to go. This is, this is, everyone's going to love this. Right. But there hasn't been enough, you know, kind of talking to people who are actually boots on the ground doing the work. Um, so, so, so that's, you know, that, that's something that, that I've seen. The other thing I've seen is you go in with having just spoken to like one person who might be really smart and have really great insights, but then they work in a really specific uh you know system they work in a really specific way um, and it doesn't work for everybody and then you have to do all of this customization to integrate other you know other other organizations um so so that's that's one thing the, the second thing when you're talking health and behavioral health is do not ignore compliance and security because i i, I the, the other pitfall i've seen is you know, um, vendors coming in who have a really great product, right? But it doesn't actually meet the data security uh, and compliance needs that organizations are required to have, right? And then there's frustration there because, you know, what do you mean you need this? Or what do you mean you need that? And, you know, the providers are like, yes, we are legally obligated to this. We we have to meet these, these regulations. Um, and so really understanding and knowing what regulations are required and it, it, it's different by state. So you have the federal regulations and then you have by state. So understanding and knowing what is required of um, providers in that industry is critical.
1: So like you're you're leading into these things that uh, maybe a, a vendor got in uh, uh, got in, Got some people excited. Uh, maybe even got some uh, resources dedicated to like launching a pilot or uh, or, or or pushing something for uh, pushing something on down the road. Hopefully not past the point of no return, because th- this this brings up the the one of the very first points that you brought up is that the research arm uh, shouldn't be like just a a big blocker in the whole process. But clearly, there are times when Perhaps though something's not up to up, up to stuff from a regulatory perspective, or your research finds that uh, their effectiveness or the, uh, or certain claims they were making didn't all the way add up. So that that leads to organizational tension, right? There's There's people that like the project is their baby and they, they wanted to go through. How do you how, how do you have that conversation? How do you navigate uh, having to say no to, to things that that people are excited about?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, in our organization and and at Butler Center we use an implementation science approach and so implementation science is a whole field of study for that sort of translation. How do you take something that is theoretical and may have efficacy behind you know, f, f, evidence of efficacy behind it and then take it out of the ideal research um, environment that it was developed in and put it into the real world when you have to deal with staffing and budgets and, and compliance and regulations. Um, And so, you know, the whole point of implementation science is how do you translate these things into the real world, into a real space? So it's agile, it's adaptive, um, and it's really about, you know, okay, so we might start with, here's the gold star. We were in an academic research study. This is, you know, what we would wanna do. Um, And so let's start there, but then what do we need to modify so that it makes sense in this setting? So implementation science is, you know, something that I think is, is really critical to, to understand, and it's a really wonderful tool to, um, to apply to industry. So that's, that's one thing, um, is it's not a rigid, um, necessarily, RCT context. Um, but then the other piece of this is, you know, just because a tool um, isn't meant for treatment of our patients doesn't mean that it's not usable in our system. Right. So maybe there's a platform that, you know, has a piece of it that our organization needs. Right. Like maybe they have um, a payment system on there. That, you know, it, it, an e-payment system that, you know, would smooth things out for us or make things easier, right? That's something that we could use has nothing to do with, you know, a need for, you know, efficacy in, in treatment of our patients. But there's there's a tool there that that could be applicable. You know, maybe it's not that it's going to be used for our patients, but maybe it has a wealth of information that our clinicians could use and apply therapeutically, right? So So it's just it's, it's not just, you know, this is the only way it can be used, but you have to think creatively and strategically within your organization. Like if someone really loves it, okay, is there anything in there that would actually be beneficial, right? And this this especially applies if it's someone, you know, who's, you know, higher up in the hierarchy in your organization that like really loves a tool, right? Those can be tricky conversations to have, um, I luckily have very good working relationships with people above me. So, uh, but, you know, when, when you are talking in that context, it's really about identifying, okay, well, you know, maybe it's not, you know, something that we can use in treatment of our patients, but what, what other piece? Would be helpful. How else, or maybe it's not specifically for our residential program. Maybe we can use it for outpatient. Maybe we can use it for you know intensive outpatient, or maybe we can use it for long term recovery when we're talking about addiction treatment. Um, so there, there are you know ways to think about these tools, and and this is where vendors and and providers can work closely together to say okay well maybe it's it doesn't work in in this original intent that we had but what other ways like how else can we work together right and and then in that way both organizations can benefit and both organizations can grow right it's, you've got that mutually beneficial interaction there.
1: Well, that's a really good point, and it, it respects the expertise that other people brought to the table. Uh, there's a reason that they might have been excited about that particular tool or intervention, and rather than it being a big stop sign, it's a question of well, given our other needs, given other things that we have in our own inventory, what are some what are some other uses that this could be employed to?
0: And so, what what can be helpful when you're evaluating tools is talk to a lot of different teams, talk to a lot of different departments, you know, say, Hey, you know, this company came in, they showed me this thing and it's interesting. I don't think it would work for this, but what are your thoughts on it? Could you see it playing a role anywhere, you know, that, that you work in or, or any space that's adjacent to you? Um, You know, and, and so you can kind of socialize it informally and, and you come up with some really great ideas that way.
1: So I, I I think that that question is helpful and it it hinges on probably the whole subject of another conversation but how to ha- like make sure that you have those good working relationships with all these other departments so that you have that exchange of information but one thing that that I'm pretty eager to bite down on uh in here is uh Julian Mitten asked a question uh around uh like let's say that you 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 have some interventions in place and you're trying to really understand how did this affect the patient experience? How did this uh, change uh, someone's perception about well, or how, how, do, how do people perceive their use of this tool? Like th- 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 these things are in place now. And the, the, the big question is like, are we focused on just satisfaction surveys or are there other types of analysis that you're doing to make sure to, to like after the fact, after the intervention has been put in place to understand how it's impacted that patient experience?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, you know that I think is a question for a lot of organizations that um, that provide care, and it's it's never too late to collect that data and take a look at what you're doing. Right? If you haven't collected that data already, you know, part of what we do at Butler Center is we actually support organizations to do that, right? So we'll go in, we'll work with an organization, we look at what data they collect from sort of what I what I say from tip to tail. So from the, the first point of contact all the way through to the end, where are you collecting data? What data are you collecting? And then we look at that and we say, okay, but what kind of questions are you trying to answer? Are you trying to, you know, negotiate uh, um, a higher reimbursement? rate with your payer? Are you trying to convince family members that they want to be involved? What is the question there? And so then we see if there's a match. Are you collecting what you need to answer those questions? And if you aren't, then we make recommendations about what you're collecting there. So it's really important um, if you're looking at your program to make sure that you're aligning the information you're asking for to the question that you're trying to answer. And, And the reason is because people now are inundated with all sorts of surveys, all sorts of questions, right? Like everybody's got a link, you know, here, get $5, answer these, you know, 10 questions or, you know, the little texting um, questions you might have after you call in um, for, you know, a customer service, you know, issue. Um, So people are inundated with requests for their information. And so if you're going to ask, make sure that what you're asking counts, So can you use that data for a couple of different purposes? Are you asking questions that will answer, are you asking for data that will answer questions for a couple of different stakeholders? So you can use that data to respond to your payers and to families and to patients, right? You wanna make sure that that's streamlined and that it's short. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a three hour assessment of data. Right. You want to get in, get out and make sure that you're being really respectful of people's time. But it's never too late to collect that data and to see, you know, what aspects of your program are are working. And, And to do that, you have to understand for your program, what is your theory behind the mechanism of change? Right. So the mechanism of change is the thing that you think your program provides that motivates people to change. Right, so what is it about your program that you think will encourage people to change? You have to understand that first before you start collecting your data, because if you don't know why you think your program works, you're not gonna be able to answer whether or not your program works, right? So you kind of have to understand that so you can ask the right questions so that you can get the outcomes and, and so that you can get the data you need to understand the outcomes and refine your programming.
1: Really, it goes back to a point that you made at the very beginning, which is uh, sometimes the questions that people are asking. Do do you like do, do people like this app? Isn't answering what uh, what the person's actually looking for. Was the app effective, for example? Sometimes a, a digital health intervention might have uh, questions that like surveys or or questions that is asking within the system was this helpful, was this satisfactory, do you feel better, et cetera. Uh, what's been your experience with with, with that data? And, and are there some hard questions that you ask when you, when you see reporting based on what people are answering in the app experience itself?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's important data to have, right, so billions of dollars go into app development. And I think at one point, um, someone quoted, some statistic or study to me that you know people will use an app on average for two weeks, maybe if you're lucky. Um, sometimes just like three or four days. So you got like a few days to convince somebody that they should integrate your app or your tool into their lives, right? And if we think about our lives they're complicated we don't you know any new thing can throw off an entire you know workflow or or you know an entire system that someone's established so when you're thinking about that data it is important to know if someone's going to use it right because a lot of times people won't use it anymore so that that data is important but you can't stop there the point is don't just stop there you also want to know if it's actually going to help them um, if it's actually doing what it says it's going to do. So it's not that that data is not good or not useful. It's just that that shouldn't be the only data you're evaluating something
1: on. That's a great point. And, uh, it also leads into, uh, I, I think, a, another question around if, uh, if, if the data that you're getting is, is coming from the app, then keep in mind about things like survivorship bias. If somebody's reporting the app that require reporting within the app that requires them to still be using the app, so uh, there might be a difference in that population that stayed past that two week, three week period uh, versus the, uh, the the people that had the initial response. So it it starts asking uh, getting to those questions too.
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And and those are situations where you want to ask why did people stop. So that's where even if people don't maintain their engagement. Um there's still a, an important source of information for you if you can get them to answer some questions around why did you stop? What didn't you like? Why didn't you come to Hazelden and Betty Ford for your treatment? right? What, what was what was in it? So it's, it's really important to ask those questions because that's how you get better. That's how you improve. That's how you continue to refine. Look at the things that didn't work.
1: We are at time, and the big thing that we want to address, we ask this of every guest, is if you could change one thing about the way healthcare is delivered in this country, what would that be?
0: Oof, Um, one thing about the way healthcare um, is delivered, Well, okay. So my pie in the sky would be that, um, access wouldn't be limited by finances, right? That everybody who needed care would get care when they needed it. Right. So that's kind of pie in the sky, but I think, um, the, you know, sort of more practically speaking, um, I think if, if healthcare was more integrated, so behavioral healthcare with medical healthcare, addiction treatment, you know, having really connected, um, you know, continuity of care from, from one area to another um, so that individuals could be treated as whole people, because all those different things affect people's well being overall. Um, you know, addiction affects how well people comply with, you know, chronic disease treatments like diabetes and, and, and things like that. So it's it's impactful across different health conditions. And I think more integrated care uh, and, and really um, connected care um, would really help pe- treat people as, as the whole people that, that we all are.
1: You know, th- those are two major two major subjects that um, I think are getting a lot more attention uh, lately. As we have alternative payment models and uh, integrated uh, care models, whole uh, attention to whole health, integrated behavioral. I could go on. There, there, there's there's a lot of attention being being dedicated to those lately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I love seeing that there's more conversation around it. It's important.
1: Well, hopefully, a lot of that conversation leads to action. But again, again, so much to talk about. I could, I could go on, but I, I just had to say a big, big thank you here. I feel like there was a lot of, uh, a lot of conversation. I, I, I definitely learned a lot in this conversation, and appreciate you for joining, uh, joining us on, on Meeting of the Minds. If you enjoyed that conversation, you can find all our episodes and transcripts at WobotHealth.com/slash Meeting of the Minds. There you can subscribe, which will keep you in the loop on new episodes and our LinkedIn live sessions with healthcare leaders like the one you heard today.